everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Bourbon Showdown Podcast. My name is Jesse Jones, and on the show today, we're going to switch it up on you guys is what we're going to do on the show today. That's right. I have Paul Holes on the show today, acclaimed writer of the New York Times bestseller, Unmasked, My Life Solving America's Cold Cases. This is a new one for me, guys. Paul loves whiskey. I love whiskey. So we decided we were going to sit down, talk about his career, talk about how he got started as a cold case investigator. He is now uh, the former cold case investigator behind helping catch the Golden State Killer. He, It's a fantastic story. I, I, I don't dabble in true crime that often. I, I just thought this guy had a great story to tell, and I really enjoyed sitting down, drinking some delicious Elijah Craig with him, and going through how he got started as a cold case investigator. Because he didn't get started in the day and age where everything was just like already established. This guy got started back when it was at the, he's at the forefront of this industry. He was at the beginning of genealogy being used to help identify uh, murderers and serial killers and all of the the terrible things that we don't want to deal with, he has dealt with and helped catch in his long career assisting the Contra Costa County Sheriff's Office, that's hard to say, in helping them capture some of the most uh, horrific serial killers of the last 30 years. So grab yourself a drink. You're going to hear me be, be uncomfortable in this conversation. I try to deal with it with humor, sometimes successfully, sometimes not successfully. But that's the way this conversation went. And I thoroughly enjoyed talking to Paul. He's a very smart individual. I think his passion for what he does comes through. No different than when I talk to uh, a master distiller. You know that passion that they have, that it exudes in the conversations that we have together? The same thing applies here. Paul is good at what he does, and he has worked diligently over the course of an amazing career to put some of the nastiest people ever uh, away. So it's amazing to sit down and talk with somebody. Again, the book is Unmasked, My Life Solving America's Cold Cases. Paul Holes, former cold case investigator for the Contra Costa County Sheriff's Office. Still hard to say, and we're so happy to have him on the show today. So without any further adieu, Let's go ahead and get this thing started. I do ask that you go hit like and subscribe on all of the things on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on iHeartRadio, Instagram. You, If you can think of it, we're on it. So just go listen, enjoy, leave us a review if you want to. If not, just enjoy the show. My name's Jesse Jones. This is the Bourbon Showdown Podcast. We have Paul Holes on the show today, the cold case investigator. So let's get Get this show started right now, shall we? Let's start the show. What, what are you? What are you sipping on today? I've got Elijah Craig. Hey, can't no, go wrong with standard. Elijah. No, you know it's my it's my go to. See, I'll join you in some Elijah Craig. I'm buddies um, with. Connor and uh, Bernie, the good people at uh, Heaven Hill. So I will okay. gladly drink some Elijah Craig 
I'm going to have a, I'm going to pop a toasted barrel. I figure we're going to be getting toasty talking about true crime. I'll go pun heavy up top and get into some toasted barrel while we chat. I'm game. Let's do it. Uh, I am super interested in what you do. I, I, I am interested to learn how you got into this. Yeah. You know, it was, uh, it was sort of a long process that started out when I was a young boy, uh, back in the seventies, there was a TV show called Quincy. I don't know if you've heard of it. Jack Klugman played this forensic pathologist, right? Right. I was, yeah, I was absolutely fascinated on how this pathologist was solving crime using, you know, medical knowledge, using science, investigative tactics. And so I I really kind of was hooked on that show. And then as I, you know, got and, into and college. What, what, what would your age have been while, while you're hooked on Quincy? Because you were born like you a uh, child of the 70s, right? I'm actually uh, of the 60s. I was born in 68. The right. Ides of March, 68. So I think I was watching Quincy in the late 70s. So probably 10 ish is okay, my best. Okay. Guess. Well, that was, I, I, I knew you had to have been young because I, as I was reading your bio, I, I, I knew that it was, I, I, you never know how people respond when you say the year they were born. So I was just going to, I I didn't want to blow up your 68 spot, but the point of that was I knew you had to be young. If you were watching Quincy. Yes. Yes. I, I give away my age when I say that. <laughs> yeah. But ultimately, you know, when I was, uh, you know, looking at what I wanted to do while I was in college, you know, that, kind of came back and uh, my I always had an aptitude for science and so I had chosen a biochemistry degree at UC Davis out there in California with the intent to go to medical school and uh, ultimately specialize in pathology and work as a forensic pathologist uh, not fully knowing what that job truly was I thought Quincy Everything that Quincy did is what a forensic pathologist did. And I did find myself, I had access to the, uh, uh, the, the med school's library. And I found myself, instead of studying the biochemistry, I was looking at the forensic pathology textbooks and all the death that's in there. And I became fascinated, of course. I said, okay, this is what I wanted to do. Uh, but then ultimately, my grades weren't good enough to get into med school because of girls. Uh, <laughs> as it happens. Yeah, as it happens. And then it was like, well, what am I going to do? And, and I was at a job fair at UC Davis. And uh, I was it, biotech was sort of the big new thing back in the 80s. This is 1986. Um, and I was standing in a line to, to talk to some biotech firm representative. And I look over and there's another booth set up in this job fair. And there is an old style, you know, the old CRT TVs, you know, from back in the day that was on a stand. And on the display was a man lying in a pool of blood on a kitchen floor. And I was just like, what is that? 
<laughs> you know, so I get over there. And then that's when I met an individual from California Department of Justice who told me about criminalistics, forensic science in essence. And after hearing the spiel, it was like, okay, if I can't go to med school, I'm going to do that. Uh, and that's what it's, I did. It sort of piqued that interest from childhood. It, 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 it tickled all the right fancies at the right time. No, absolutely. And, you know, once I got into uh, the the forensic science side and the CSI side and then was going to the morgue on a routine basis and, and you say that so casually, you, you say going to the morgue on a routine. You didn't even pause. I, I, <laughs> That's part of the job. I, I know it. I know it. It's just you, you, you're you're built for something I'm not built for. And it fascinates me. Yeah, well, you know, and, and that is um, that is something that people who are interested in, you know, they watch the TV shows like I did, you know, uh, and they go, oh, I want to do that. They have to do some serious soul searching about mm-hmm. what they are going to be experiencing, because you see the worst of the worst that people do to each other. And it's not for the faint of heart. And it has an impact on you. Um, and and that's what I've experienced. You know, I ultimately, you know, wrote my memoir and I see that that you have it there uh, unmasked. And that really, uh, instead of being a, a book about, uh, you know, investigating a high profile case really turned into you know, how this job impacted me over the course of my career and, and to the current day. And so that's when you say you, you have to have the aptitude for it. But even if you have the aptitude for it, the, the stomach for it, it still it still has uh, a, a you know, negative impact. It's a grind. On, on, it, it is for sure. Well, uh, but, and even, you know, first thing you say is I order another bourbon. And of course, for me, that tickles my fan i gotta I, I gotta quit saying tickle my fancy i don't know why that's gonna be the thing i go with to repeat multiple times i don't want, this I don't want to tickle your fancy <laughs> <laughs> but it is one of those things where it immediately tells me that there has to be a coping mechanism for what you do there has to be something that uh, swings the pendulum the other way so that you're not fixated on the macabre all the time yeah you know and and that really kind of got me into, you know, my, my love for bourbon, you know, sort of the negative aspects. Uh, but of course there's the positive aspects, uh, you know, kind of going back, you know, to responding to the morgue on a, on a routine basis. I saw exactly what forensic pathologists do day in and day out. And I was like, Oh, thank God. I didn't pursue that as a career. (laughs) So. It's man. And you're dealing with this in a time frame like like you. The science behind what you've done or what you've been doing, it's been evolving as you go. Like you have been on the ground floor of a lot of DNA research as it pertains to how it's applied to criminal justice and and, uh, forensics and everything in between. Right. I mean. You right. didn't have a, a hundred years of of research, or not research, but you didn't have a hundred years of experience writing the book for what you were doing. You were kind of in the field uh, learning and building what other folks are now probably using at the beginning. 
I I did enter, you know, when I started my career uh, and uh, became a, a sworn forensic scientist, a deputy sheriff criminal. So I had to go to the police academy, and this was a very unusual thing uh, out in California at the time. Uh, we were the last agency out in Contra Costa County, the sheriff's office, that required the criminalists to, to go to the police academy and become sworn officers. And I was like, well, why do I want to do this? You know, I just want to be a scientist. But thank God I did it because it turns out that I really enjoyed the investigative aspects more so than the science. But when I initially started out, uh, and it would have been about three and a half years into my career as a criminalist assigned to doing crime scene investigations in the old serology unit, uh, I was doing the old ABO testing protein testing, ABO, uh, the enzyme testing. And we were just getting this newfangled DNA technology on board. So I was there really at the very beginning of law enforcement in the United States using DNA technology. And then, of course, over the course of my career, uh, I, along with the technology, evolved and saw how it could be applied and then ultimately at the end of my career ended up basically stumbling across you know this revolutionary tool uh the 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 genealogy tool that is now being used to solve the most unsolvable cases uh and so it really was an interesting ride in terms of experiencing this this evolvement this uh, right. this uh, evolution of of the technology but it's such an interesting time it, it like think about it john mulaney's got this bit where back in the day if you didn't want to get caught you just had to not be there when the police <laughs> arrived like if there was blood on a crime scene the policeman would just go gross now back to my hunch you know yes and and, yeah. and you have uh been able to through DNA through genealogy. Uh, uh, what roadblocks did you find? Did you have hesitation from other officers? Like, like, were there people so tied to the previous way of working that this newfangled science? Like, did you have any of those? Like Harvey Bullock's, just like, listen here, scientist, let us do the police work, and you go back to the lab. Well, you know, over over the course of of the the decades, of course, you know, you I experienced interacting with many investigators that really kind of looked sideways at technologies and tools that they didn't truly understand. Most notably, uh, behavioral science. You right. know, evaluating you know, uh, aspects of the offender based on the behaviors he's exhibiting out at the crime scene and his, and his interactions with the victims. A lot of the homicide investigators were like, well, nah, you know, that's just hocus pocus, but it's a tool that is valuable. Uh, the, the DNA uh, side. Could you unpack that a little bit? Could you unpack what that means? Uh, uh, I think everybody has an idea like 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 a one percent idea from something they've seen or read or probably a lot of science fiction mixed in with reality uh behavioral sciences what you were just explaining would you go into that just a little deeper sure yeah you know be 
Most people, when they think about behavioral science and profilers, right. you know, they're thinking a profiler is evaluating the case and now saying, you know, the offender is a white male, 35 years old, uh, has mommy issues, had a drunk, abusive father, blah, blah, blah. And, and the reality is, is that a lot of the early reports coming out of behavioral sciences were kind of like that. But when you talk to profilers, uh, you know, they go, well, that's the least valuable thing we can do because it's so subjective. Right. We come in and, and, and I'm a practitioner of behavioral science. I'm not a profiler, but I have some skill sets and some expertise in evaluating behaviors at a crime that, that I can discern from a crime scene. And this is where now you get people who are experienced at the weird. You think about law enforcement. Law enforcement is very good at investigating the cases that they routinely handle. Your gangbang homicides, your drug-related homicides, your domestic violence stuff, where the offender is known to the victim and the motives are typical, typically greed, vengeance, uh, lover's triangle stuff, uh, you know, that thing. But when you get into fantasy, fantasy-motivated crimes, law enforcement often doesn't recognize when they are dealing with that type of offender, the serial killer, the serial rapist. And so they try to, they, you know, respond out to a crime scene. They're looking at the victim, they're looking at the crime scene, and they try to put it into the, the world that they know, and they completely miss, hold on, there's something weird here. And this is where, you know, I have this, this, this mantra, know thy enemy. And, and this is where now, I've taken the time, and you're going to go, my God, Paul, you, 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 this is just off the charts. You know, but I've taken the time to understand the various paraphilias, the various sexual uh, abnormalities that these offenders fantasize about and want to live out. So when I see something weird, I step back and go, okay, this is not normal what would what type of offender would be doing this and then that gives me information about the type of person i'm looking for that's so interesting. So you're stepping into their world where previously people would be trying to take that uh, crime and make it fit into their world. What does this yes. relate to what i've been doing where you're able to go okay, uh what was he into that led to this this end result came from A, B, and C. What were his A, B, and Cs to get there? Yeah, and, and to give you an example, you know, I, I have a, a case from the early 90s, and I use this to train. Uh, I, I Before I retired, I would, ta I would train uh, law enforcement investigators on the, uh, I called it the introduction and recognition of the serial predator. And this is one of those cases in which a sex worker goes missing. She's found deposited behind a motel the next day, laying face down. She's nude from the waist down. She's been strangled with a belt. Um, and she has eight bras on, stabbed in the back 25 times, but none of the stab wounds go deeper than an inch. Original investigators 
go, this is a dope rip. You know, this is what the sex workers were doing. You know, they basically were ripping the Johns off, saying, give me that $20 and then not providing the service because they want to go buy a baggie of dope. And, and, and that is the per- that's the perfect example of them taking it and applying it to what they see every day. So now they you look it at it. What they know. Yes, absolutely. And, and I'm looking at it going, OK, here you have uh, I was looking at these eight bras and sometimes sex workers will put multiple layers on to kind of change their figure. Accentuate. Uh, but that, yep. But that's not what was going on here. The, this was something that the offender had put on her. And then all those stab wounds to her back, all those superficial stab wounds, which were occurring while she was alive. This is a sadist at work. This is somebody who enjoys inflicting pain and experiencing the victim writhe and scream and everything else. But it's also called pickerism, where the offender is using the knife as penile substitution and actually gets sexual gratification of stabbing over and over again. Yeah, exactly. And I'm going, this is a serial predator. This is not a dope rip. You know, and so that is an example of how law enforcement early on just doesn't recognize what's going on. But if you have the training and the experience and the behavioral side and understand the weird, now you go, okay, I know the type of person that is committing this crime. See, it's so funny. Uh, from my background in stand-up comedy, the first thing my brain goes to is there's some dude, he's never been good at getting the bra off a girl. One day he eventually just snaps. He puts like eight of them on her. She keeps laughing every time he can't get a bra off, so he puts eight more on her. And then the next thing you know, everyone's crying and the police are there. See, we're all screwed up in our own ways. Yeah, you know, um, uh, did you ever have any problems getting a bra off? Is that what, what <laughs> I just you, uh, we're talking about people putting themselves into the scenario in their world. Uh, my form of assimilation is I look for the joke in something that makes me uncomfortable. What you just okay. said is one of those things that like I, I, I can only imagine the toll it takes on you to put yourself into somebody's brain that finds the uh, uh, pick. What do you call it? Picky pick a pickerism pickerism. So I find the humor. I find the light. You have to work in the dark. It is a very interesting and uncomfortable thing. How have you surfed it? Like, like if I was you, I would look a thousand years old. How, How do you still look like, 32 and and you're doing this for a living well i i wish i were 32 um no yeah i think that you know most certainly kind of living in the darkness you know and i have not been good at healthy coping mechanisms you know that's mm. just I mean, this mo- most certainly working in this career has impacted you know my family my relationships you know me psychologically um but at the same time this is what i'm good at and mm-hmm. this is what i love you know and and i always tell people i told my kids uh and i tell people who are looking or you know trying to soul search in terms of what type of career they want to get into i just say pursue your passion 
And I and I believe I I found my passion and that's probably why I am good at what I do, you know, because oftentimes it's not work for me. It is it. There is a a uh, um, Yeah, exactly. If I'm given a case file. I tunnel vision on that case and there's a certain level of euphoria as I'm learning all the details about the case. And I experience more pleasure out of first learning about some of these cases, you know, the, the details of these cases than reading a novel. You know, so that's where uh, it's like, yes, I'm doing what I was born to do. No, but, you know, when I go out, let's say I go out to a crime scene. Uh, and, and even on a, on a cold case crime scene, that's when I get that, what sounds like that certain zen. You know, I am now in that environment and I'm putting myself back in time on a cold case. And I do feel an energy while I'm there. Uh, and I, you know, and then I'm kind of the kind of the weird side. It's like, you know, I was out at Blue Rock Springs, which was the second Zodiac attack location out there in Vallejo. And I was out there interviewing one of the original responders to that uh, homicide. And I'm looking at these massive eucalyptus trees. And, and these trees were m- most certainly there at the time of the homicide. And it was like, those trees know who the Zodiac is. It was like, just tell me, you know, tell me who this guy is, right? You know, it's 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 almost that weird thing of I am now in the very space of Zodiac or Golden State Killer, all these other offenders I've gone after, you know, I am standing exactly where they were at. It's just that we're separated by time. Right. And if there's only some way I could just bridge that time and see what exactly happened at this location 30 years ago. And I'd be remiss if I if I didn't bring up the Golden State Killer. Uh, he was that was a cold case, wasn't it? Like he he hadn't operated since 86. Well, 86 was his last known case in the entire series. Now, when I first got involved in that case back in 1994, he was only known as, or I should say, he was known as the East Area Rapist, but the attacks that we knew attributed to the East Area Rapist were all in Northern California, ranging from Sacramento down to San Jose. I was the one in 2001 pursuing DNA, newer DNA technologies at that time that linked the East Area Rapist to a series of unsolved homicides in Southern California, which were committed by a guy they knew as the original Night Stalker. Right. And now this this blew up until we've got a statewide serial killer who was attacking from 1976 to 1986, over 56 cases in that series, you know, with 13 dead and at least 75 adult victims that he let live. And then ultimately uh, this case uh, via Michelle McNamara, who uh, was a true crime blogger who I became personal friends with, uh, she rebranded him as the Golden State Killer. And then that's when the public all of a sudden was like, oh, wow, what is this case? Because before then, people weren't aware of it. Not not too much anyways. 
the Golden State Killer was a much better moniker than what was he right before that? Like E R E M D R P. Eurons. Yes. Yeah. Golden State Killer is a lot easier a sell than the Eurons. Yeah, and I, you know, and I remember I was arguing with Michelle saying we don't need another moniker for this guy because there was also <laughs> potentially the Visalia Ransacker, East Area Rapist, the original Night Stalkers. Like, it gets too confusing. But Which, ultimately, she, she was right. Of all names, though, that first one is the most vaudevillian. <laughs> He's the. It sounds like a Batman villain from the TV show in the 50s. The Ransacker. Well, and and quite frankly, as the Visalia ransacker, he was a he was he was a poor criminal. He struggled to break into houses. He was doing the fetish burgs where he's raiding the women's underwear drawers. He's you know taking trinkets, um, and uh, he was seen by so many people. And he was heavy set, just goofy. And we have what almost looks like it was a composite that almost looks like a clown. And I was like, you know, but when he went up to Sacramento in June of 1976, you know, the early victims were describing him as athletic fit. He was domineering, dominant, uh, psychologically sadistic, a very different offender to a point where I was going, I don't think this is the same guy as the Visalia Ransacker. Well, once we solved the case using the genealogy tool and we identified Joseph D'Angelo as the Golden State Killer, it became obvious, well, he was also the Visalia Ransacker. He was heavier and he learned how to commit crimes better. He was a cop as when he was Visalia Ransacker. Uh, He was uh, a burglary investigator, ran the burglary uh, task force while he's committing these these, uh, fetishbergs down in the Visalia area. And then once he recognized that he was going to get caught uh, due to a variety of circumstances, he Mm -hmm. moves up. He, he, he becomes a cop up in Auburn, just north of Sacramento, and then starts a series of rapes in the East Area of Sacramento. And that's when he became known as the East Area Rapist. But because of that composite and because he sucked as a burglar down south, he refined his skills. He changed his physical appearance. He developed an M.O. to hide his identity better. He was an intelligent offender that learned from his mistakes. That part is scarier to me than him being a police officer, him being uh, uh, any of the other things. The fact that he was able to recognize he wasn't good at it and worked to get better at it is terrifying. This was his this was his true passion in life. This was his profession. The job was secondary, you know, and that's where you do have some of these types of offenders like BTK, Dennis Rader out there in Wichita, Kansas. Very similar offender. He was an intelligent offender that learned from his mistakes, meticulously planned his crimes. These are the the worst of the worst type of offenders for law enforcement to try to catch because they do so well at hiding their identities and preventing leaving physical evidence. You know, that's that's where it is a struggle. And that's where some of these cases take decades. 
Are they evolving? Are they evolving with the technology now that they know that blood and genea- DNA and genealogy can track them? Are they getting more? Are they getting more clever? No, well, sure. You know, and there, there's always been, you know, there's always been a tit for tat type of thing, cat and mouse between law enforcement and and these offenders, um, and and most certainly with DNA. Now you, there are uh, select offenders that are making every attempt possible to prevent leaving DNA during these attacks, such as wearing condoms uh, if it's a sexual assault, the types of clothing that they're wearing, uh, but. The dynamics of the violence, oftentimes they can't control, and sometimes they'll get they'll get punched in the mouth, you know, as they're they're making an attack. Next thing you know, they're bleeding out at a crime scene. Right. You know, so that's that's what we hope for these types of offenders that that try to take, uh, you know, try to prevent leaving the evidence. But now. What we're seeing is these these, you know, predators go to where the prey's at. You know, and, and we're not seeing the type of serial rapist, serial killer like D'Angelo, who's going from house to house in neighborhoods and successfully getting away with the tax. Technology makes that very hard to accomplish from just home alarm systems and pervasive sure. surveillance videos to license plate readers to cell phone technology. You know, people who try to do those types of crimes may get away with one, two, three, but they will eventually be caught. Right. What, you know, now offenders, you know, they are always looking at a way to be able to lure and isolate the victims to a location where they can physically attack them, but where it's less risky to Concealed. themselves. And, and this is where the online space comes in. Now the predators are using online services in order to lure victims to a physical location where they can go physical with them, whether they be uh, escort services, sex workers, kids, you know, and social media with the the, the child uh, molesters, you know, so that's where the domain is because the online aspect with people who have the skill sets through VPNs and other ways to anonymize themselves, it makes it very difficult to track back to them. And, and, and there are a lot of those types of guys out there. Well, I mean, you got to think if, uh, I get a bunch of emails from some dude claiming to be a South African prince wanting to give me $10.4 billion. Every level of that is a, is a possibility, you know, uh, for everyone that you don't fall for, there might be six that someone else will. Did you ever get your 10.4 billion? I've sent him the cash payment. He asked for multiple times, Paul, and he's still not sent me my, my money. What is wrong with these people? Well, he wants to meet me at the abandoned skating rink in Huntersville in three weeks. I think so he can give me the money. Okay, well, well good luck with that. Um, nice knowing you. <laughs> uh, so when you are uh, with Golden State, you got involved uh, after he had already – how does a person like that – I don't want to say retire. Was he still – active at all or was he completely inactive uh at that at that point because and i i ask because from the crimes you described it doesn't sound like a person like that would be able to turn it off right um so the last 
known attack that D'Angelo as Golden State killer the, that he did was in that 1986 time frame. Um, and we have not been able to find any other cases uh, that we can attribute to him conclusively since. And there have been some cases that I've been asked to evaluate. Uh, there's one case I was like, ooh, this could be. But to this day, it hasn't been able to be linked to him. In 1986, D'Angelo was 41 years old. So he is now, from a serial predator age, he's now getting long in the tooth. And he was a very physical type of predator. I mean, he's prowling at night, jumping fences, sometimes being chased by law enforcement. It's a young man's game. In the type of case that he's doing, it absolutely is. And, And we know that as men age, you know, they're just serial predators, just like a, a, a typical male is going to have hormonal changes, some of the inner drive to, to, to attack the sexually motivated crimes. You know, that drive is, is likely going to lessen, though there are examples of, of much older offenders continuing to attack. But I do believe that D'Angelo uh, stopped uh, and. And there's plenty of examples now, as other notorious serial killer cases have been solved, we're seeing where these guys have stopped. Uh, Gary Ridgway, the Green River killer, he killed 48 women in two years up there in Seattle area. He stopped. And when he was interviewed, well, why did you stop? He said, well, I got married. (laughs) You know, he had a life change. Uh, Dennis Rader, who I brought up before, you know, he meticulous planner. And when he was interviewed about stopping, he said, you know, my last case, I went into a house. I had planned it. I knew there would only be a woman in there. And I was wrong. There was a man in there. I think it was her brother or something like that. He got into a physical fight with this man inside the house. He was able to, you know, accomplish the attack. But then he left going, I I could have been hurt. I could have been caught. I could have been killed. I'm getting older. I'm done. And he literally shut it off at that point. Now, this does not mean that they stop fantasizing. Right, right. Right. But they're no they're now going self-preservation kicks in. And it's like, okay, you know, I I am now retired, you know, in all likelihood from being physical, doing the physical act. I will continue to relive the crimes. But every now and because I think D'Angelo actually stopped in 1981. He was retired in 81, and then in 86, he, he does one more attack. He joined. He, basically, and I, I think, you know, his last attack, 19-year-old Janelle Cruz, beautiful young girl. And I think he saw her, and he just couldn't help himself, you know. But he, number one, he, many of his attacks uh, were with men present inside the house. You know, that was part of his, uh, uh, his MO, his signature that he enjoyed, uh, dominating the males, uh, during these attacks. Uh, it's notable that his very last attack five years after his second last attack, there's no man in the house, you know, and he's, this is where self-preservation is kicking in. Because He's doubting pre- himself. Well, the previous attack, he got into a fight with six foot, six foot three Gregory Sanchez and possibly thought he all could have lost that fight. You know, so that's right. why I think we have that five year gap between the second to last to the last attack. He's like, I'm done after leaving that 1981 case. But then he unretired for the one 
that he did on Janelle Cruz. There is something so like it, it boggles my mind that these guys are able to compartmentalize this as if it were playing golf or as if it were something like, like, like in their brain, Oh, I'm getting too old for it. Like, like, like they don't see, did, or I guess, is, is that a question? Do they see it as this, in their brains, do they see this as a horrific thing that they're doing? Or do they see it as like, hey, I like this. I'm going to do this. I'm getting too old for it. Maybe I'll try uh, bowling instead. It, it depends on on, on the, the individual. Uh, and it, I'll use this term. It, it, it depends on how the individual self-identifies. Mm. So Dennis Rader, BTK, when he was arrested, he was married with kids. He was president of his church. He was active in his son's Boy Scouts. From all counts, he was like this perfect husband, perfect father figure, right? But when he was interviewed, he was going, that was all a facade. I'm BTK. That's really who I am. So in, in essence, he just kind of married and had kids to kind of throw off society while he lived the life he wanted to live, which was going out and, and, and killing uh, women, kids, families, etc. Somebody like D'Angelo is, is different, I believe. D'Angelo, he became the doting grandfather. Um, he never sought attention to this day. He has never sought attention Unlike BTK, Dennis Rader, who's going, I'm BTK, you know, and that's what his ego is what got him caught. D'Angelo doesn't want to talk about it. I saw a man when he was arrested who was so dejected, he never thought he would be caught. And I believe when I assessed the crimes, he was struggling with the case, the types of crimes he was committing while he's committing them. I mean, he was sobbing in the corner after sexually assaulting the women. Um, I I think he was an offender that had an inner compulsion that every now and then, you know, he ended up acting out on. And he was the best of him. He was fighting it. Uh, And and eventually, as he got older, that compulsion and the the desire for self-preservation you know, the compulsion lessened and the and the desire for self-preservation kicked in. And that's how he was able to, to stop. And he was truly living a life as, you know, Joe D'Angelo, the truck mechanic who would go out fishing. He's got three daughters. He's got a grandchild and he's just living that life. But he knew that he had this past life that could come back and haunt him at some point. Is it that aspect of it that makes society so interested in these cases that that I don't want to say association with what it is, but maybe it's the fear that that compulsion could live in anyone like that dual nature that 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 could it be you? Could it be your neighbor? Could it be anyone like is that the fascination slash like uh, almost um, uh, sadomasochistic fear? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, most certainly part of it is in, in, in terms of, you know, the, the average Joe, you know, to somebody. Who, you know, how do I say this? It's 
sometimes these guys look like the boogeyman. Oftentimes they don't, you know, and, and there is a lot of controversy about the, uh, the, the show on Ted Bundy because they used a good looking actor to portray Ted Bundy. Right. But the reality was, is Ted Bundy was a charming, good looking guy that many women fell for. And he utilized that aspect of him, of, of his persona in order to accomplish his crimes. Um, but there is that aspect of, well, why, you know, this person that looks normal, they have this monster inside of them. Uh, you know, and, and and I know that fascinates me. You know, why do these guys commit these types of crime? Right. What causes them to go do this? Is it were they born this way? Was it their upbringing? Is it a combination of both? You know, and, and we don't know. You know, I, I truly believe it's a combination of nature versus nurture. Uh, but I do think that that's part of the fascination. But it is also these are the monsters. These are the vampires and werewolves of today. Right. Uh, and, and the reality is, if you look back at history and read about, you know, victims of werewolves and vampires from way back when, in reality, they likely were victims of serial predators. And the average person, when they're looking at what was done to these these bodies they're going some beast must have done this some monster must have done that and now you've got werewolves and vampire lore but it's actual people doing it they just didn't recognize these types of people exist they couldn't comprehend what they were seeing it was so outside of their norm that they had to come up with some superhuman uh mystique scenario to make that make sense to their brains absolutely because some of these guys what they do to their victims physically is absolutely horrific. So having said that, you've been doing this now, like, like how did you know it was time to hang it up? Like, how did you know it was time to retire? Was well, it the fact that you maybe you, you, you had accomplished so much, you had caught so many people that you were, you, you pulled a Jordan and, and didn't want to go play for the wizards. No, not at all. You know, cause we, it, it, of course, I've got a lot of notoriety for having a primary role in helping catch D'Angelo's Golden State Killer. And everybody, you know, success story. Absolutely. The reality is, is I've got way more failures. There's so many cases I have tried and tried hard uh, to to solve and haven't. You know, so when I look at my career, it's not a Jordan career. You know, even with, you know, the, 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 the Golden State Killer, you know, it's... Yeah, I'm proud of what was accomplished, but it's that's not what I dwell upon. Now, you know, I dwell upon I've got a, a binder here on Cassette Ellison, a 1970 victim, which I failed to solve, you know, and it haunts me to this day. You know, what really drove me to retire was financial reasons. You know, this is just part of the pension system that I was in. And it was like, you know, at a certain point, uh, you know, I started out young at age 22. I put 27 and a half years in. So at age 50, I pretty much, if I continued to work, I would be losing money month to month. Oh, and I was wow, like, wow. okay, so I, I financially need to retire, but I am continuing to work cases to this day. So even though I'm retired as a county employee, I'm still consulting with law enforcement. And then I'm, you know, now I get involved in cases on the media side, you know, to, to do shows on various cases and where now I get to go out to the crime scenes and, and it's in a different capacity, but it brings me that 
kind of little bit of satisfaction that I'm still doing what I used to do when I was active. Okay. So, and I would imagine it's like, you're a pretty busy guy. Like, like, like you've got the podcast are, are you, I imagine people want you to help them. Uh, you're consulting on books where people want to write about serial killers I have done that. Not not too many times, but I have had authors reach out to me saying, hey, I want to you know do X, you know, within the storyline. How would we accomplish it? Or I want a crime scene, you know, with a certain type of evidence to tell me something. How do I set that up? Uh, but right now, you know, my time, I've got the two podcasts. I've got Buried Bones with mm-hmm. Kate Lee Dawson, and then I've joined Small Town Dicks with Yardley Smith and, and, and Dan and Dave, you know, two retired law enforcement guys. Which is a, one of my favorite names of all of the true crime podcasts that are out right now. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, it, uh, you know, and, and the unfortunate uh, shortened acronym is STD. And it's like, OK, <laughs> somebody didn't think this through. Yeah, um, there was a Bible. That's right. <laughs> And then now I'm the host of Real Life Nightmare on HLN. And so those episodes just started launching. Uh, and I was I previously had a show on Oxygen called DNA of Murder, where I literally was was trying to solve the cases with law enforcement. I loved, loved, loved that show. It's just that the production schedule didn't allow for a true investigative process to occur. You know, but we did we did uh, solve one case as a result of my involvement because of that show, the Carla Walker case, the 1974 case out of Fort Worth, Texas. And that's the case that I opened the book with that I discuss. And, and I hadn't thought about that, but of course that makes sense because they want to wrap it up in 16 weeks where you may need like a year and a half or five or 24, like in the golden state killer case. Right. right. <laughs> uh, do you ever sit back and watch something and be, are you able to enjoy uh, thrillers? Are you able to enjoy crime dramas or, or do you like, like, for example, when I watch a movie where they try to talk about comedy, I pick it apart because trying to stage com- a writer writing an actor doing comedy never works. It never look at uh, punchline with Tom Hanks is a great example of that. Like it's just never real to somebody that does it. So when you're watching a thing, do you go, well, that's not right. The blood would obviously stipple to the left. Yeah, well, there, there is that for sure. Um, I am able to, when I could watch movies and, and shows, I can separate out from from the kind of being the critic, having the critical eye and, and just enjoy the show for what it is. Um the problem that I've run into, and it's and it started, uh, you know, literally probably after Michelle passed, and then I got so focused on uh, Golden State Killer, Michelle McNamara, I can't get myself to read a novel. It's hard for me to sit down and watch a movie, you know, and that's something where I'm just now trying to get to where I can start enjoying some of those little things in life again. Um, and which makes sense. Yeah, you know, and, and I'm starting to, you know, I still I'm not reading any books, uh, yeah, but I've I've sat down with some movies. I've made it through some movies and it's like, OK, you know, baby steps here. And and I, I just think that that's also just part of the side effect of the career. And, and I was so focused 
Uh, I was devastated by Michelle's loss. Um, she passed away in her sleep um, uh, just suddenly. And then uh, and, and, and then just just being so emotionally drained, you know, pursuing Golden State Killer as well as some of these other cases at the end of my career. It's just like, God, you know, I just can't I can't consume anything that's not part of what my focus is. I get that. I completely get that. Uh, as as and as you've consumed over the years, I know we 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 jokingly mentioned bourbon earlier, but but there has to be something. There has to be some form of release, right? Like like when you were first getting started, did you? How did you? Because now I, I imagine the longer you go, the more you learn yourself and you learn how to balance yourself. But in the beginning, uh, uh, youth, it's an all-consumption uh, part of your life. Uh, how did you get to a point where you knew you had to balance it? Or did it eat you alive for a little bit? It, you know, it, it was. it's more of something that snuck up on me. Mm. Uh, and this this was something I didn't realize was happening to me in terms of, you know, the, the kind of this cumulative trauma. Uh, you know, and and it really was that Carla Walker case where, you know, I it's, it's a case that I, the type of case that I've worked many, many times. And here on camera, I'm having to give an update to, to Carla's family in terms of where I was at, you know, and, and I'm I'm breaking down. I literally am like choking up on camera while I'm talking to her, her brother and sister. And I, after getting, you know, finishing up and saying my goodbyes to them, I go out to uh, the Jeep that had been rented for me out in front of the house out there in Texas. And I literally just started sobbing and I was like, what is going on? So I ended up going to a therapist. I live here in Colorado Springs, uh, you know, and, and out here, you know, special forces, uh, army, you know, you, you, you have some guys that have experienced some, some shit, you know, yeah, and, yeah. And, uh, they, you know, so this therapist had a lot of experience and then I was explaining, you know, my career and what I did and, and she was going, okay, I, I see what's going on here. You know, every time you're working these cases, every time you go out and see another woman butchered or you see a kid that's been killed, uh, or review a case and then looking at autopsy and crime scene photos, that's a little nick, right? And that one nick isn't anything, you know, you just kind of you know, bury it. It's like, oh, it kind of hurts, but, you know, it's just like a paper cut. You, you forget about it. But once you've done it for 30 years, all those nicks, I was bleeding out. And that's how she explained it. Um, and so it's like that's, Chinese water torture. It, well, it is. And, you know, and that's part of where I, I, I've, I've started to recognize if I had addressed this, if I had recognized and addressed it earlier, you know, I probably would be mentally healthier, psychologically healthier than I am today. Um, and so I've been very vocal in the podcast realm about, hey, you know, we have to recognize, you know, that you know, homicide investigators, death investigators, CSIs, dispatchers, uh, you know, civil, not only just law, you know, the peace officers, but the civilians who are handling these types of situations, you know, they need to have have a, a you know a a level of help during their careers not when they feel that they're struggling right, uh, right. you know because we recognize when an officer gets involved in a shooting you know they're they're I mean they're 
basically almost mandated to go to therapy. Uh, it's depends on each department, you know, that acute trauma is recognized, but the chronic trauma is not recognized. And, and law enforcement does a very poor job at managing that. And, you know, I was a manager and, and we had a, a, a horrific case where five people were killed, three bodies were cut up and these, you know, three body parts uh, washed up in the Sacramento River Delta. And I sent a, a criminalist, a forensic scientist up to Sacramento morgue in order to assist with the autopsy and document it. And he came back and he, he's, you know, he was pretty experienced at that point, though, junior. But he goes, Paul, that was fucked up. And I didn't recognize as being his manager, he that was a cry for help. Oh, wow. And so I should have been going, OK, hold on. Let's talk about this. Let's see if we can get you talking to somebody, you know, so you can at least, you know, release what you get are experiencing. Out. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's interesting. My cousin was CSI Tampa for a little bit. Oh. And, and that's exactly what he said. Uh, you get to a point where it's uh, y- y- you don't want to go to work like like you just can't you're, you're full. You 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 can't take anymore. Uh, and in that heat, uh, he said he, he thought his experience might have been a little expedited because um, you don't find anybody on the first day. And Florida is a very hot climate. Hot, humid, a lot of insects. Yep, I know exactly what he would have been experiencing. So, and, and you know, we only saw it at Thanksgiving. So I could only imagine, uh, to your point, the daily ramifications of that. Uh, uh, because even at Thanksgiving, you could tell it was weighing on him. Well, this is something where, you know, and 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 in some ways, I thought this might be, t- you know, TMI in in the book because. You know, a lot, a lot of the cases that I focused in on, you know, purposefully involved uh, women victims, you know, serial predators, you know, male serial predators uh, attacking, ta- attacking women. And of course, I went out to, to many cases in which women were victims and, you know, both seeing, you know, them out at a crime scene as well as, you know, watching these women being autopsied, uh, you know, those visual images creep in at the most inopportune times only imagine uh, and that really screws you up in terms of your relationships um and also it's that uh it it really becomes like the dreams mm. you know i have horrifically graphic dreams but they're not nightmares you all wake up and go wow you know, that was that wasn't cool, you know, but it's not like a typical nightmare where you're like heart is racing and everything else. Whereas I think if the average person were to visualize what I just visualized in a dream, that would probably carry with them for weeks, if not the rest of their life. So how do you handle that? You mentioned therapy, but on a daily basis, you have that n- nightmare. Do you. The, OK. Not real. Move on. Do you try to figure out why? Like, are, are there triggers? Like, okay, uh, this happened to me yesterday. Maybe that seeped into uh, tonight. Because uh, uh, I'm I'm very interested when anything happens out of the ordinary. Uh, I, I like to try and figure out where it came from, almost to a fault. So what yeah. you're describing would would 
I, I would not be able to just wake up and keep going. I'd have to try and figure it out. Well, you know, I think because when I when I wake up and I've had a graphic dream, um, you know, it is okay. What from my past is is being pulled in at this moment, and why is it being pulled in now? And sometimes sometimes I can figure out what in my past. You know, I like the last graphic dream I had was a dismemberment dream and I'm at the morgue and I'm have all these body parts. But the weird thing was that these, these body parts, as I picked them up, whether they just be a, a part of a leg or part of a torso, they're all pulsing, you know, which was really weird. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and then when I woke up, I was like, God, you know, and then, then that one case, you know, with the, the three bodies that were dismembered, I was going, okay, maybe that's the case that in that kind of just kind of bubbled to the surface, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but why did it come now? And I, I couldn't tell you. I, I don't know. And uh, it's they just they pop up from from time to time. And for me, you know, it's that's disturbing. You know, that's what I would think when I'd wake up. Uh, but then it's like, well, you know, I, that's just something that I know is going to be part of my life mm-hmm. for, me for the rest of my life, to be frank. Well, at least you know that, though. At least you can plan, f- not plan for it, but at least you can be aware of its uh, s- being a- in your vicinity so that when it does occur, it doesn't completely freak you out like the first time every time, you know? At least yeah. you can build up kind of a, a, a plan of action when that occurs. Yes. yes. I love how vocal you are about that, too. I love that you're not like, um, you know, people are not great at talking and discussing things that, that make, them uncomfortable or or for fear of societal whatever uh, uh i think it's very healthy the way you talk about it and the way you uh interact with it well that really was uh you know the evolution of you know when when i sat down to, to write the book it was going to be this deep dive into the golden state killer investigation because you know i started writing it shortly after d'angelo was caught i saw how the public really globbed onto it i was like oh you guys have no idea you know i will let you know what this was all about and quite frankly to this day there's so much that the public doesn't know about that case and or that investigation um but as that book matured and I was working with a, a literary agent and they read what I had written. And they said, well, let's get you some professional writing help, right? It's like, okay, you're telling me I'm not a good enough writer. Um, and then we got my collaborator on board, uh, Robin Gabby Fisher. And then she's trying to get to know me. And then she's hearing about all the other cases that I've been involved with. And she's like, oh my God, Paul, that's the story. You know, Golden State Killer, of course, is huge, but you've been involved in Lacey Peterson, JC Dugard, Zodiac, all this other stuff. Let's write about that. And then as we were finishing the manuscript, the publisher is, is reading it going, well, Paul, the, the readers are going to want to know more about you. We need more Paul in there. That's the most interesting part. Everything we've talked about so far, uh, uh, Golden State, he's great. He's a but he's a character in your story in my mind. the mm-hmm. The interesting part of of your involvement in the podcast, your book, uh, your involvement in the show is, I think, uh, there's a very human. Uh, a part of you that's easy to connect with when it comes to how do you do this? Like, I think that's the interesting part of the whole story is 
Quincy, you know? Yeah, well, well, and that's, you know, and that's, that's good to hear from you. And that's been the, the response from other readers because I was resistant. I'm very private. You know, I've never talked about my personal life publicly before the book came out. Very few people knew more, knew anything about me outside of, you know, the gold or killer aspect. Oh, right, and, right. So when I was being asked to, you know, really kind of open up, um, I was resistant. Uh, but then eventually I started to get a sense that, okay, this is important. Um, and uh, when we finished the manuscript, I still was like, I was nervous. You know, how is this going to be perceived? Did I put too much out there? Yeah. And how are people going to perceive me? Uh, how are my but, neighbors how are, when they see me at the grocery store? Yes, absolutely. And one of the early um, one feedback that really impacted me very positively was from Dave from Small Town Dicks. You know, I had known them for a couple of years at, at the point that the, you know, the book was about to be published. I had asked them to interview me on stage at, you know, for book tour out in Portland, Oregon. Awesome. And so they got an advanced reader copy and Dave read the first chapter and he texted me and he said, that hit me hard. I so relate. And he was a child abuse investigator for 10 years. And so here is another professional who has experienced trauma and for him to not ridicule me, but to say, OK, that's where I'm at, basically. Now it's like and that's that's that has been the general feedback I've gotten from other law enforcement professionals who have experienced bad things over the course of their careers are saying, yes, you know, this is this is what I am living with. I just don't know how to you know talk about it, how to articulate it. Right, right. You know, and so I think and if I, I've had a, a therapist during the book tour, you know, they, the therapists are coming up to get the book signed saying, Thank you so much, because this is a subject we are dealing with all the time, but nobody's making it public. These guys and women that are in the field are suffering out of fear because in law enforcement, you can't show weakness. You can't show up at a crime scene and go, oh, God, you know, I can't handle this because then you basically will be ostracized. Well, it's such a bravado in order to solve a crime you have to like 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 that that perception that there's a bravado attached to solving a crime that if you let the crime in you will somehow be ineffective in your duties like yeah. like like and and you're proving that that's not not the case that you can still be good at what you do and not let it drive you crazy well, and that's that really became the message of the book. You know, instead of being the deep dive into Golden State Killer, a deep dive into all these other cases, it became this is what this profession has impacted me. And now, you know, for me, the primary message when I talk, like I keep bringing up, this is this is a tough profession, you know, for those that are interested in it because they're watching TV shows. It's a very rewarding profession, but know what you're getting into. 
I mean, it will impact your life for the rest of your life. Well, I, I think it's a beautiful message, and I do think that's the interesting part of the book. I, I it's it's a weird society that we live in that the fact that the uh, uh, the crimes are now so rampant that uh, nobody is surprised by the gore, which I think is a whole nother topic that we can maybe cover another time. But the sure. fact that you focused so um, you went so introspective on how it did affect you, that 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 kind of humanized what you were going through and allowed people to kind of take what you were doing, um, learn from it. But also the story was you, I thought. I, I, I thought that the, 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 the trials and tribulations of somebody investigating Garden State was the story. Well, and that's, you know, and, and this is the type of feedback that gives me sort of that, that courage to be able to talk so openly about, you know, all these kind of almost embarrassing and negative things about, you know, who I really am as a person. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's something that, you know, <laughs> the fact that people have accepted now that I've exposed myself in a way that still accept me is reward in and of itself. Well, how could it not be? Uh, you're a very interesting individual. I was very much looking forward to talking to you today. Um, this is uh, a, a wonderful story. The book is well unmasked Paul holes, uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you. I'd love to talk to you again. I, I, I'd love to do a deeper dive into some of the things we've discussed. I feel like we just really uh, skim the surface of a lot of things because honestly, you've been doing it for so long. There's a lot of things to cover. Like, like, like there's a lot to cram into an hour. So I'd sure. love to have you back some other time and we can go into some more detail on some other things. And, 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 you know, and, and then tit for tat, you're going to have to give me a recommendation on the next bourbon I should uh, be sipping while we talk. I love the idea. I love the idea. It was Elijah Craig this time. Uh, next time, I'll send you some uh, uh, goodness that I, I had in store for today. But then you came out of the park swinging with the Elijah Craig. So uh, I, I next time, I've already got you ready to go. Awesome. Well, thanks a ton, Jesse. Great talking to you, Paul. Nice talking to you. Thank you. Cheers. There you have it, everybody. That is this week's episode. I want to thank Paul Holes for coming on to the program. New York Times bestselling author, Paul Holes, might I add. The book is Unmasked, My Life Solving America's Cold Cases. I, I definitely recommend this book. If you are into true crime, this guy... I think I said it in the interview. The story's about how he catches the Garden State killer and, and, and serial killers of that ilk. That is interesting. But the story here is Paul himself and how he understood what he was good at. He went for it. He did it so well, but at the same time understood himself to know what he needed to do to keep himself going while he was doing these amazing things. So go pick it up. It was great talking to him. Paul, 
Elijah Craig, on me next time, buddy. Anytime you want to come back, I've got more whiskey, you've got more stories. Let's do it again, because that was an amazing conversation, and I do thank you for your time. And I thank you guys for listening. Uh, that was fun. That was, I, I guarantee you, you were not ready for that, were you? You thought you were going to talk whiskey. We did talk whiskey, but we also talked true crime, and I absolutely loved it. Tune in next week. We've got more whiskey. We've got more bourbon showdown. It's going to be a great season six. I've got some more surprises. You like today? Come on back. I've got more surprises in store for uh, next week and future episodes. My name is Jesse Jones. I ask that you go hit like and subscribe on all of the things. Come back next week. We got more show, but until then, let's raise a glass and kick some ass. I'll see you guys on down the road. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.